Hi, this is Jeff Kober, and we welcome you to this Disney Insights podcast. Well, I am so pleased to announce that my newest book, A Century of Powerful Disney Insights, is now available on Amazon. This book is tied to the 100th anniversary of the Walt Disney Company being commemorated this month. Volume 1 shares the Walt and Roy Disney years from 1923 through 1973. In introducing this book, I've invited my son, Cameron Cober, to interview me and discuss the book. Very much like myself, Cameron works with organizations to improve their leadership and employee experience, in this case, in the federal sector. This book is full of stories from the first 50 years of the studios, which can be applied to your own life and work. Join us as we chat about a century of powerful Disney insights. Be sure to also check out DisneyInsights.com where we will have um, access to links and images and other things associated with this podcast. Make sure that uh, while you're there, you subscribe to DisneyInsights.com and to our podcast. If you get a chance, please give us a rating, review, or referral to others. Also, Subscribe to Disney Insights because we offer key points, photos, videos, links, so much more. Check out our Facebook page, Disney Insights, and our YouTube page of the same name. As a preface, the book, Volume 1, is about 200 pages. It carries 43 chapters that chronicle the beginnings of the company, from Walt arriving in California in 1923 up until the 50th anniversary of the company, just after Walt Disney World opened and Walt's brother Roy passed on. Each chapter carries some specific event or period in the growth and development of the Walt Disney organization. I didn't want to miss any specific important milestone, which is why the book grew to be two volumes. Moreover, each chapter has some particular lesson or message and offers what I refer to as, quote, ideas for the next century, which are questions to ask yourself to consider how these stories and ideas relate to your own life and work. Other works have gone into greater detail about specific time periods such as Walt's life or the advent of Snow White or the creation of Disneyland. These two volumes will be one of the only two works created to canvas the entire 100 years of the organization. That's not an easy task. I wanted to be succinct, but not miss anything. Well, good news. If you aren't familiar with the history of the organization, this will offer you a clear perspective of how all this rolled forth. And if you are a big fan of Disney, better news. I think in every chapter, you probably will find some tidbit of information or insight you have not heard before. So without further ado, I'd like to go to the interview that my son Cameron gave um, with me and, uh, and share with you my thoughts and insights about this 
new book, A Century of Powerful Disney Insights. Well, it is my pleasure to um, have my son Cameron be a part of this podcast experience. And I did it for a couple of reasons. First of all, well, um, he is my son. And uh, and so I, I thought that that might be of interest. But also, it happens to be that my son and I, via our own journeys, do very much the same kind of things. I have my own organization in helping uh, those entities in the public, private, nonprofit sector improve and develop. And, and, and Cameron does the same thing uniquely and distinctly for the public sector, for the federal sector specifically, in his um, nonprofit work. So, so we actually do very much uh, many of the same kinds of things and we share notes a lot of times. And, uh, and the book, of course, is trying to say uh, in many ways, okay, what are the ideas for uh, not just you personally, uh, but for also for your organization um, as you're going to move forward into the next century. So uh, thank you, Cameron, for taking the time to be, uh, to, to kind of uh, interview me on this podcast. Take it over. Thanks. Thank, yeah. Thanks for having me. There was some stiff competition in selecting an interviewer. So I feel honored. <laughs> no, your sibling said no way. <laughs> so. um, well, I, First of all, congratulations on the publishing of this book and the second volume, which is to come. Uh, I'm sure a uh, lot of labor of love went into into this, and and I, uh, I no person I can think of better uh, equipped to to be able uh, to tell the story. Of, of course, I'm a little biased, but I think there is a lot of truth to that. Um, so that's my endorsement. Uh, before I go any further, but um, you know, as you were deciding to put this together. Obviously, uh, this is part of a momentous occasion, 100 years of the company existing, but I want to know a little bit about what went into your decision to, to write this, what motivated it in particular. There's obviously a lot of people who have told this story in different ways, maybe not quite as uh, as uniquely as you have. So so what, what went into that decision? Yeah, no, thank you for asking that. When, um, as we approach the 100, first of all, uh, for those who aren't aware, the day that the organization was established is October 16th. It was 1923. I was born many years later, but we share the same birthday. And I came to know that around the time that the company celebrated its 50th anniversary, which was about the time I became you know, kind of excited by all things Disney. And so I was there and very present and very, uh, I saw that play out in 1973 when the 50th anniversary came. And then later in the 75th anniversary, I don't know if you realize Cameron, but there's a there's a picture at the end of the hallway near your old bedroom that is a big Mickey picture all framed up. And it's actually commemorative of the 75th anniversary which happened about the same time Fantasmic came out at Disney's Hollywood Studios. And so, uh, and I think I bought some Christmas. Anyway, long story short, now we're here at 100. And I really felt it's interesting because some of the things that we'll talk about at the very end of this book, at the end of the 50th anniversary, are really things that are happening now 
in at the end of the hundredth anniversary as we are as we commence the hundredth anniversary, economic, political, uh, all sorts of things happening in the world kind of make it a little bit of a struggle for Disney to just pull out all the stops and celebrate like there's no tomorrow. The fact that they have reached 100, 100 years, which is really for a lot of corporations to kind of keep themselves somewhat intact as one entity over at many organizations amalgamate and, and, and become part of something bigger or something else. This company is still here 100 years later. I think it needed to be celebrated. I felt the way to do that was through this book. And and then as I got into this book, I realized, well, there's no way I've got to cover all 100 years in one book. So that's how we ended up with two volumes. This first one being 1923 to 1973, which are largely the years of Walt and Roy. So that's kind of what brought me to deciding this. had been playing in the back of my mind for a long time. I finally... I finally dug down deep and said, okay, if I'm gonna do this, I've got to have this book out by the by by the hundredth anniversary. And here I am. Here, here we are. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate you mentioning that. That is definitely an area I, I'm going to want to talk through a little bit more is this kind of cyclical nature of um some of the themes and some of the results of the company. But um, but before we jump into that, how about we um start off with you know kind of more general conversation. Um, obviously, this uh, particular uh, volume is really digging into uh, the years of Walt Disney and his brother Roy Disney. Uh, would love to just kind of start off. Uh, what would you consider to be the greatest strength that Walt Disney really brought that that has made this company so successful for so long? Uh, that man had vision. And moreover, he had a persistence of vision, which is very ironic because when he got to Hollywood just a couple of months before they started their first contract, he had no idea what he was up to. He was unemployed. He was bankrupt. His brother was ill. And he really thought he was going to go to a different business. Um, but his brother's and, and he felt like animation had really become a business out in New York. Um, and so when he, his brother Roy said, I think you really could do an animation business here and, and do it out in, in Hollywood. And, and so they, they began that. And over time, I got to tell you, Walt just, he would, he would latch onto something and it might take several years for him to get to it, whether it was Mickey Mouse or Snow White is the first full length animated feature or Disneyland He'd latch onto that and go through many reiterations in his mind. There's a there's a dialogue that I have in the book where an outside artist kept poking around some of the studio um, employees and saying, what, "What what makes you the Tiffany's of 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 animation? What makes you you know really stand out?" And the artist at Disney said, "You know, this Walt. He really studies this thing through." He really knows the details. People would say he knew everywhere, every every um, electrical line and plumbing line lay in the streets of Disneyland. He was just so into the details because he would map out the thing perfectly in his mind. And then it became reality 
afterwards and his ability to get others on board to doing that and being persistent until he got that vision realized that was that was incredibly uh that was his best strength and bringing and knowing the strengths of others to bring that to bear in getting that vision realized that was really Walt's greatest strength. Let's talk a little bit. You know, of course, it it, it goes without saying that uh, Walt and and I want to bring Roy Disney in into this conversation too. That Walt and Roy, of course, had huge impacts on on culture, on film, uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, uh, of course the the theme parks and the you know just absolute mass interest in this in this organization. I don't think it, it's it's questionable that kind of impact that they've had from a cultural standpoint. I think I'd like to talk a little bit on just from a business management perspective. What is the what what will you would you say is ultimately the greatest influence of Walt and Roy Disney in running a corporation effectively? Uh, yeah, a couple a couple of things. First off. Um... You know what? Your business is no better than than your customers' demand for that business, and recognizing that at the end of the day, it really is your customer that's going to buy the ticket to come to the movie or buy the ticket to come into the park, and so their ability, what I refer to as the chain reaction of excellence, where if you want to be successful, then you have got to have fans and customers and and guests as they would refer to them in the Disney parks, people who absolutely love what you do. And you have to, in order to get that, that love, that fandom, you have to deliver excellence. You couldn't just dial it in. And Walt never, never, now Roy sometimes wanted to push back on, but Walt was always, pushing to some other technology, some kind of innovation so that it would absolutely stand out in the crowd and it would it would just draw audiences toward them. So they understood the idea that you really had to create excellence. And in order to create that excellence, you had to have a team of people to make that happen and engaging that team. And Walt was a very interesting person because he was not the person who would give you the big, oh yeah, good job guys, and way to go, and that type of thing. He'd be, he, you'd be lucky, you'd be living off of something as simple as, yeah, that'll do. And it'd go on. But what Walt did, Walt didn't, didn't focus his artists and his people on the idea that getting a big acclamation from him was, was the most important thing. What he did is he focused those artists and those people on a drive toward creating excellence and just building out really great product and, and, and getting that passion burned within your employees to be engaged in building that out. That is powerful. And that took Walt really, again, going back to that vision, being able to tell that story, getting people on board getting his staff on board to the vision and then getting them to drive excellence. Cause he was not, he was not a great artist by himself. Um, and, and, a, and a child, and some people are familiar with this. A child once asked him, do you draw Mickey Mouse? Hey, uh, no, honestly, I don't. What, what do you do? I'm like a bee. I go from place to place gathering pollen and 
and creating honey. And, and that was what they really brought to the table. Roy at, at the same time was making sure the engine kept running because there are many great efforts but um, out there in any organization. But if you run out of steam, if you run out of money, if you run out of time, it doesn't, it doesn't work. And so their ability to get people on board to a vision and a dream, make it happen, create great product and, and create customers who just, I mean, it, it is a, it is funny to see how people generationally point back to Disney as the place to go or the play, the film to see or the thing to do. It, it, it is a generational thing because, because parents keep bringing their children back in time and time again. Let me, let me push that on that a little bit because okay. I, I do love what you're saying about that, that commitment to, uh, to excellence, I think is, is how you, you said, said it. Um, thinking about when Disneyland first opened, you tell, you know, a story about a park that is, is very much not quite ready for prime time. Um, yeah. that you, you talk about the asphalt with women's heels getting stuck in the asphalt, uh, boats, mm-hmm. uh, getting close to sinking. Yeah. Plumbing issues. Uh, and yet people, people showed up, people showed up, uh, not only on day one, but consistently showed up, um, from, from the, from the get-go. What did the Disney brand represent in 1955? I think, you know, we, we have this idea of what Disney means today. Um, uh, but 1955, obviously the company is still much, much younger, um, how were they able to create that kind of brand at that point and still be able to get over some of those kind of initial um, hiccups? Hurdles. Yeah. No, thankfully, thankfully, that park did not die on day one. Uh, but what made that work happened well in advance of opening day. And that was Walt had this vision of getting a network, in this case, ABC, to buy into the idea that he would have a TV show. And every week, that TV show would talk about one of the four realms of Disneyland, Fantasyland, with different cartoons and animation, or Adventureland with his true life adventures, or or Frontierland with Davy Crockett. So he had already, and he'd keep people posted. Here's how we're doing on the park. Here's a little bit of footage. He had the biggest running commercial going for himself uh, way for an entire year. So by the time they opened, that was an invitation only audience, although there was a lot of counterfeit tickets and people lined up anyway and came in that shouldn't have, but, but it was day two where they kept coming. And day three, by the end of their first, um, it was about month and a half, month and three weeks, they had reached um, a million visitors into the park. That is an astronomical number and that you couldn't have done that if you had just put up a billboard and said, hey, come on over. So he had really painted the way for that to happen and kept using television, kept using um, his... And, and people complain, oh, there's too much Disney IP today. Well, let me tell you, Frozen and Encanto and Coco and all those films are, are, are what leads you up to going to the parks. That They are the drivers that make you want to and make, make it so much easier when you get there to identify with that place or attraction or land or um uh, popcorn bucket or whatever it may be that gets you, you know, really excited about it. So that that is the brilliance of Walt. And and by the way, 
TV networks could not understand why he kept pitching this Disneyland thing. But he kept pitching it, and finally they bought onto it. I feel like I remember some of those uh, TV network commercials <laughs> on VH tape to VHS growing up. I don't know how you got a hold of them, but I'm pretty sure that was. I we oh yeah oh yeah I, mean, I kept yeah did Disney Channel inside the vault and all that kind of thing. We were we were playing a lot of those over the years. Uh, so a lot of Don, Donny Osmond. Uh, Disney yes, Channel. at the Haunted Mansion. That is the that Haunted is Mansion. the pivotal one that yeah. so, so many fans keep coming back to today. Um, well, let's let's talk a little bit more about Walt um, as not not necessarily as, a, as an innovator, as a creator, but as a as a businessman. And, you know, there is plenty there are plenty of anecdotes in this book about and I think this is fairly well documented uh, uh, that Walt really wasn't a great businessman. Uh, he made a lot of he made a lot of mistakes. Um, he uh, really uh, could have could have had a lot of issues. Um, what would you attribute the long-term success of the company to? Um, how did this company, despite sometimes the uh, over-exuberance, if you will, of its founder, manage to stay afloat despite some of these things? Yeah, Walt on his own. That, that, thing, that thing was destined to die so many times over his history. The, the people who tried to to uh, play him and take advantage of him and so many so many instances the depression and the war there are so many ways to take Walt out and and honestly it would not have happened if it were not for Roy so I say two words show business it's show business Walt was the master showman but Roy was the master businessman and and it was because of that pairing that they were so successful with each other and it was and and it was a constant tension between them because in Roy's experience he's thinking to himself i mean mind you and he'd be the first to admit it if it hadn't been for his brother he'd been working at a bank as a teller i mean that that was his his sense of of life his idea was his vision was to get the company out of debt. Walt was continually trying to find new ways to invest the money and redo it and build and do more. And, and he could not. And if there was anything that made Walt frustrated was that he was anytime he felt like he was beholden to shareholders or to return on investment or to the board of directors, he did not want to deal with that. He wanted he wanted to build something new and fresh and continuous. And, and that he, he had more dreams than he could finance. And Roy spent his entire life trying to finance his dreams. Now, um, and I say this because every organization, you might be in the auto business, you might be in the healthcare business, you might be in the airline business, but it's two words, airline business, show business. It's you have to focus on doing both really well. And they paired perfectly in that. Let me just add one little story. At the end, uh, the last thing that Roy really did, the well, um, the big event after Walt's untimely death was building Walt Disney World. And Roy did that debt-free. He managed to do that by going into a partnership with USS Steel, 
to have them build and operate the resort hotels, which was the Disney's contemporary and Disney's Polynesian. And and the thought was that would, you know, reduce the amount of debt load he had to take on. So he he managed to do that. But USS Steel was was terrible at the hotel business. And so his final decision a month or so later after Walt Disney World opened and only weeks before he passed on was to buy at U.S. Steel. But that meant going into debt or taking on some additional debt to do it. Now, mind you, those resorts have made money time and time and time and time again. But at that moment, the ultimate decision Roy Disney had to make was putting the show before the business. And at one point when he and his brother had a big frustration with each other, a big long-term fallout, when they were trying to map it back together, he went to his people and he said, look, we would not be anywhere today if it had not been for Walt Disney. So we've got to fix this. We got to address this. So it isn't business healthcare or business auto or business airline. It's airline business auto business, healthcare business, the thing comes before the business. Hmm. Business is important, but the thing that drives you is the thing you do well. Yeah, it's, it also just strikes me, he strikes me as an individual that was comfortable betting on himself. You know, even though some of the ideas may not have always landed, um, he felt that he, you know, had, had an idea and that those ideas were mostly going to pan out. And and that you know you can you can bet on yourself and and you know hopefully see see that return. Well, what but a lot of people pushed against Walt. The banks pushed against Walt. Roy pushed against the others. Pushing he when he got to Mary Poppins, he finally said, you know, it's interesting. Nobody seems to be pushing against this. <laughs> and he said, yeah, I finally came to a realization. Maybe they're seeing that I've got a point here. <laughs> that this is how we need to do this. We need to make it incredible and people will come. And of course, Mary Poppins did record business for them. So, so here's a out of left field question. How, how, would, how would Walt Disney um, respond to the, the modern day Walt Disney World, Walt Disney shareholders? What would that relationship be like in a hypothetical? Um, well, I think I think he would be struck by how many shareholders there are today and how big the organization is. And if he went to Walt Disney World, I think he would be blown away by, and and the other resorts, Tokyo and all the others, how amazing these things have grown to become beloved and have become bigger than life, bigger than frankly, he even realized. At the same time, he'd be picking at the littlest thing and go, uh, this looks old. Why haven't we fixed this yet? <laughs> Can't we do something better than this? And he'd be wanting to figure out a way to do it. And if you told him it's going to cost money, we didn't have the budget. He'd go figure out another way to do it without having to have having to be beholden to the budget. I uh, love that. Let's um, start uh, transitioning to kind of what comes next in this. Obviously, I want to, you know, uh, Think through obviously the ne next book is is coming uh which would be detailing the second uh 50 years of the organization um we touched on this earlier and um what, what really struck me in the book were 
really a, uh, you know, obviously uh, thinking about Disney animation in particular, there, there are plenty of ups and downs that were taking place while Walt was the head of it, you know. Uh, many of that, of which I feel you could see parallels to to modern day periods uh, that I've I've even seen in my own lifetime. So yeah, um, you know, thinking about uh, you know some of the slumps that took place, for instance, during World War II, uh, you know, around the time of Walt's passing, um, what what lessons does do those periods that where there were there somewhat slumps that took place have for the company today, which you know arguably has recently or even in some you know opinions going through a bit of a slump uh in animation currently what you what, cannot what yeah absolutely you cannot dial it in you cannot rest on your laurels you have got to consistently innovate and push forward and and it's interesting because when you guys you know when my children come to me and say have you seen this film that's not disney and you're saying this is kind of cold this is kind of different and then you're kind of saying, okay, so why didn't Disney do that? Hmm. You know, the one, the Christmas one that we've watched a couple of seasons with a guy who goes up to the North Pole and takes over the, um, I don't remember the title of that, but uh, yeah, Claus, isn't it yeah, Claus? That's right. I think that's uh, right. Yeah. That is such a great little film. Why wasn't that Disney? And so, so um, Walt had that experience because Part of Walt's challenge was he was be quickly becoming divided in so many directions. And there were other things he wanted to do other than just the next animated feature. So his challenge was getting his staff and team to, and, and, and this was the this is the problem at the end of volume one. He has passed on, Broy has passed on, and the company is asking, what would Walt do? I will tell you what would Walt do. Walt would be creative. Walt would be out of the box. Walt would be pushing boundaries and limits. That's what Walt would do. He wouldn't be rehiring the same artist to come in and voice over a character that looks just like the character you had in the previous film. And, and that's, that's when you get yourself in trouble is when you think you've got a formula and, and, and the formula, the formula simply cannot become formulaic. You, there is a formula to Disney, but it cannot be formulaic. And the formula is around innovation, creativity. It's not around having another princess story. It's a, or having certain songs and certain parts of the film. It is around, the formula is around being innovative. And that's what will drive Disney moving forward. And I think there's some really great people. If you can get the bureaucracy out of the way, it can happen for you. Uh, would Walt want people to ask what would Walt do? No, no. He, if you don't know it, then he probably would be very frustrated that you haven't gotten it. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, uh, Ward Kimball, I think, understood that better than any other animator. He clearly could see that this for this, what would Walt do, was not going to hold long term. And uh, but Ward had been pushing uh, the boundaries even during Disney's period. And so he's always coming up with crazy things and he just kept, you know, moving in that direction. That's exactly what the company has to do. Love that. A um, couple, couple quick questions. Uh, one, uh, this, I love this era because there are so many uh, Disney vault 
uh, properties that get uh, spoken of and they are deep in the vault. They're just yes. like in the very back. And some of these things we don't even let get out. Um, but of these of the the quirky stuff that is that is in there um, that Disney Walt Disney had to take on for a variety of different reasons. What is your what is your favorite quirky Disney film that maybe most people don't know? I <laughs> I well I would say it's my favorite film, but but in that category you just talked about, he thought sincerely with all his heart that might there might be a way to end the war if you had a um if you had a long range bombing plan and his reading of alexander disaversky's victory through air power inspired him to fund a film that is totally not in his his <laughs> it's his uh realm it is not in the category of family entertainment by any means and that's why it's not listed and you're not going to see it but honestly it was actually something that did inspire churchill and eisenhower to see that and to show it to um eisenhower's um chiefs of war and it did play it did come to play a, a portion of the role that, of what happened when we got to um, um, into France and invaded France uh, at Normandy. So uh, that, that, that's a chapter nobody knows about, but it's just when he, it's just it's so emblematic. When Walt feels something, he goes and does something. And, and, and he's not concerned so much about how it ends up in the box office cell, he's more in, interested in whether it truly makes a difference in the world. Are we are we starting a viral campaign to get this released on um, uh, <laughs> Disney Plus? Is that what I'm hearing? Hashtag, hashtag free Disney World War II films. Free victory through air power. Yep. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, you heard it here, folks, first. Um, all right, well, wanted to wrap things up and... Uh, you know, and with a question, you know, you, you obviously were exploring a, a very large period of time, uh, re-exploring in many ways. What, what would you say is the, the biggest aha moment for you in carrying out your own business as you wrote this book? Well, before I answer that, what was your aha moment reading the book? I, we, we talked about it already, but I, I think the, um, the cyclical nature of a lot of this is, is mm. very interesting to me, especially as a, as a student of history, to some extent, to see, seeing how pop culture is really influenced by what is hap what happens, uh, political, socio in sociopolitical contexts. Um, I think that, uh, has a lot of, again, parallels to the modern day era and, and a lot of lessons learned to current executives on how to, you know, whether, whether these kinds of storms. So for me, it, this happened um, about a month and a half ago. I was writing the chapters dealing with two major projects Walt wanted to accomplish at the end of his life. One was CalArts, where he was always big on educating his artists and creating better artists. And he wanted to create a vehicle that would last the era ages and it still continues today it just celebrated its 50th anniversary cal arts it is a, a, an institution dedicated to 
um, to the creative arts. That was really important in terms of his giving back. The second thing he wanted to do, he was very focused on this thing called Project X. Project X ultimately became known as Walt Disney World. But his dreams and his ideas of what what uh, would go there were just the things he he knew his health was such he could only focus on a couple of things. And those were the things he focused on. And what was the aha for me, Cameron, is I realized as I was writing this, well, he was about my age when he embarked on those two activities in a full yeah. way. And it's easy when you get to my, I'm not old, I don't think so, but um, it's easy to get to a certain point in your life where you think, oh, you've done the big things. And it's made me think, first off, uh, is there a Project X in my future? What would it be? What would it look like? Why not dream big? And, and you know, go big or go home. <laughs> so, so I have really given a lot of thought almost daily to what is my Project X? And then secondly, how do I ultimately give back to the, to the world around me? So those are two things that are my takeaways from this experience. Love that. Yeah. And uh, Walt Disney's Project X being very different than Elon Musk's current Project X, whatever that is. Um, <laughs> yeah, not, not to be confused. Very, very different. Uh, not to be confused. Well, uh, thanks for sitting down. Uh, once again, congratulations on the book. And we are all anxiously awaiting the second uh, volume of this. Um, but congratulations. And uh, just a plug for everyone listening. Check it out. It's it's great and highly recommended. Thanks, Cameron. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat. I want to thank my son, Cameron, for taking the time to talk to me about this important milestone. I'm excited to share this story and believe it is an important way to celebrate a century of Disney magic. To that end, I have dedicated this book to the two who started it all on October 16, 1923. Quote, to Walt and Roy Disney, who sought to bring happily ever after to the lives of so many. This book is dedicated to the profound way you have influenced the world around us. Thank you for what you created in the first 50 years and what has given us the entire 100 years. And most of all, thank you for the ideas and inspiration that will lead us into the next 100 years. Again, thanks for joining us for this podcast. Hey, please go to Amazon. The, the link is on the show notes and at DisneyInsights.com. Go over there and check out uh, my new book. Again, thanks for being with us. Thanks for joining us. And in the words of Sinbad's storybook voyage, always follow the compass of your heart. Have a great day. We'll see you real soon.